everyone this is sonali mangal and welcome to another episode of learn educate discover on this podcast we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about the goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes how do they go about exploring it further on today's show we'll be talking about working in the field of informatics so what is informatics if i look at wikipedia informatics refers to the science of information systems which in turn refers to basically a system that helps you process and interpret information All right, so that is definitely not very helpful and so that's why we have a guest on today's show to help us understand this field and her name is Tiffany Chen. Tiffany works as the director of informatics at a startup called Cytobank that's based right here in California in the US. And if you check out their website at cytobank.org that's c y t o b a n k.org you'll see that this is a very interesting company what cytobank is doing is that they are building a product which will help researchers who are trying to understand the biology that is happening at the single cell level so their product will help these researchers conduct complex analysis and it'll help them become more productive share information with each other become more agile so essentially it'll help these researchers come closer to understanding what exactly is happening at the single cell level so a very interesting company and in fact they're funded by a bunch of investors including the Stanford Startex fund coming to Tiffany herself she has a very deep background in the space she in fact has a phd in biomedical informatics from Stanford University and she's been working as the director of informatics at Cytobank for close to 3 years now so very deep experience in the space and if you listen to the discussion you'll find that she also comes with a lot of passion for the space in fact starting from a very young age she started conducting experiments on her own which now in hindsight point towards a very strong inclination towards this field so definitely someone that we can learn a lot from quick note before we continue with the podcast if you have any questions for tiffany at the end of the show or any questions for me please feel free to email us you can email us at learneducatediscover@gmail.com you can also follow us on twitter and send us a tweet our twitter handle is @led_curator so without further ado let's welcome tiffany to the show and i hope you enjoy today's discussion Hey Tiffany, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Yeah, great, Sonali. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So, quick question on Cytobank. It sounds like a very interesting company. How old is the company? Yeah, so it depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cytobank started uh, originally from PhD projects from Nikesh Kotecha, Jonathan Irish, and Peter Krutzik at Stanford, actually. And from there, it was incubated there and grew as a company. Really started getting customers around 2010, 2011, and then I joined about two and a half years ago. Yeah, almost three years now. So it's been around in some different form for about five or six years, yeah. and then before then as a Stanford-only version. Before then, yeah, yeah. So, so you were already getting customers. Cytobank was already getting customers while it was at Stanford. Yeah, I was one of those customers. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Oh how come? Yeah, so I I don't know if I really understand what Cytobank does. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So yeah, you you hit it square on the nose. So Cytobank is a platform for single cell data analysis in the cloud. And so the people who primarily use Cytobank are biologists and clinicians who are really interested in investigating the detailed biology of both for example the immune system or cancer or other different types of cell types. And so when I was doing my PhD at Stanford, I use Cytobank as a way to communicate with other researchers, get access to their data as well as analysis so I could do post computational analysis as well. 
I see. Okay. So uh, while you were doing your PhD in this area, you found Cytobank to be a very useful product and that's what introduced yeah. you. Okay. It was a very different product back then. <laughs> I see. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the journey for every startup. So yeah, as well as software. Yeah. So, all right. So before we get into informatics itself, maybe you can give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and your journey so far. Sure. So my undergraduate, I did at Duke University in computer science and biology. I really have a love for computer science education. Nothing really overlapped between the computer science and biology until I took some classes. One class, it was a lab course in biology where we were physically making microarrays, like printing them out. And then the other class, we were doing microanalysis. And so this is gene expression analysis. Actually, it was just in the news. The, the company that makes all of the, the microarrays, um, Affymetrics, was actually just bought <laughs> by Thermo uh, Fisher like, on right, Friday last week. Quick, Clara, so what did you say, microarrays? Yeah, so microarrays are a technology for analyzing gene expression of cells. So if, if you go back to the central dogma of biology, DNA, RNA to protein, RNA, the expression of those genes. And so microarrays were developed in kind of early 2000s or used quite a bit in the early 2000s, just a chip where you could measure the RNA across tons of genes. It's been a really great fingerprint for understanding a lot of different things, actually, from disease to inherited traits, things like that, to see what your cells are actually doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what even got you interested in this field? Yeah, so I was always interested in biology, but when I uh, entered college, I started taking computer science. And so informatics is this interesting mix of statistics and computer science together. And so once I started taking these classes, I realized nobody else was taking these classes where in one class we were printing microarrays and the other one we were doing the data analysis. And so I just continued. I was like, well, let me try doing research. And I did like mathematical modeling of folic acid uh, in the body, but then I was also doing caterpillar research. So caterpillar a, research. A huge, yeah. What is that? It was a huge variety. It was literally caterpillars. Like I was feeding, growing caterpillars and collecting data. Oh wow! About, okay. About their weight. Yeah. So about it, you know, their weight. Oh, yeah. Sounds fun. <laughs> so it's it's not really big data at the time, <laughs> but it kind of it, it kind of made me realize. Yeah, that my my computational skills actually had some use within the biological domain. Right. No, no. So, so, okay. So first of all, if you were to Mm -hmm. describe what is informatics, how would you describe it? Yeah, sure. So that's something everyone in my PhD program kind of asks themselves. It can mean a lot of things. I think you, you gave a good description. I often think of it as the merger of how to store and process data, but also how to analyze it. And that's why it's such a broad field. This is why people in informatics come from different disciplines, from like computer science and computer engineering all the way to like hardcore statistics. Because if you call yourself an informatician, it's like a rainbow scale of where you live on that spectrum. And that's why also it's actually kind of interesting, but sometimes difficult to hire someone as a straight out informatician. In the last three or five years, they've started to segment those roles more. Like there's the role that's like that people hear more now these days, like data scientist or data engineer, Uh, or analyst, or something like that. And are these uh, segments of informatics? I would say yes. Uh, One of the things that Stanford actually is doing is they're creating biomedical data science department. And the program that I graduated from biomedical informatics is actually going to be the only PhD granting part of that, I believe. And so it's interesting. It's just a continuous evolution of what it actually means, because Another way people call data scientists is statisticians who know how to code. (laughs) Oh, right, right. Yeah. But a data engineer, which is the other end of the spectrum for an informatician, is is quite different, actually. That role is much more focused on, let me think about this, it's much more focused on building the infrastructure to handle the hypothesis being asked. Data scientist is someone who actually asks that hypothesis, tests right. it, and okay. actually tries to sell okay. it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So actually, if you were to explain this evolution, right, like in very mm-hmm. layman's terms, what is that evolution? Yeah. So I guess historically, when you think of the word information science or informatics, it's been aligned a little bit more closely with like library science or things like that, 
where it's like, well, we need to catalog all this information and we need to figure out how to store all this information. In like clinical informatics, for example, historically, it's been a lot about how do we design and store interpret clinical data in electronic medical records? How do we structure it for future interpretation? More recently, it's it's been on the other end of the spectrum where it's just like, we just have a mess of data. <laughs> how do we actually start to get results and information out of it? So the assumption is that if you have enough data, you can get some kind of signal out of it. Right. The question is, is that signal real and can you trust it? Right. But you know what you're describing, and again, I'm speaking as a layman, but it sounds sure. very similar to big data, right? Yeah, yeah. That's actually... It's, it's really the interface of big data where informatics has kind of evolved to. Yeah, so, so then my follow-up question is that, I mean, I meet so many people who are working in data and some of them choose to call themselves a data scientist and some call yeah. themselves, I'm working in big data. I think you're the first person I've met who, who has used the word informatics. So when and why do people use these different words? Yeah, <laughs> it depends on who you ask. Um, I would say that, there's a, a great class at Stanford, one of the statistical learning classes, which posits the question of um, what's the difference between statistical learning and machine learning? And fundamentally, they are the same thing. But machine learning is a much hotter <laughs> I... kind of desired um, skill set. And so I would say that part of it's the evolution of the fact that the data is just getting so large that we can't necessarily manage it in the ways that we were able to before. One way I can kind of describe it is that, and this is much more on the data engineering side of informatics, is that previously you could fit like, you know, a whole data set on your laptop and analyze it directly there. The last 10, 15 years, people started analyzing these in parallel compute clusters and using that kind of infrastructure to, to build for analyzing data. And now more recently, it's much more at this point where, well, let's assume that you just have so much data, you're not exactly sure that it's just too slow to compute on it directly. And so there's new technologies in terms of like Spark and Hadoop, I would say from a NoSQL data storage standpoint, which allows you to analyze the data right. faster. Right. And so I think that's kind of where that evolution has happened more from a data storage standpoint. And what has had to happen is that statisticians now can actually do real statistics <laughs> because the data is larger. Right. And so that's kind of where it's evolved a bit. It's true. I, I don't hear the word informatics as much as I used to. I think that the word data scientist has, has grown quite a bit. Yeah. But let's say I do the same podcast with someone who calls himself or herself as working in big, de big data. Do you think that they would sort of have similar answers to what you have? So I think it, part of it depends on what kind of problems they're solving, right? If you interviewed someone who said they were a data scientist and they were doing it for business analytics at a major company versus a data scientist who's working, doing kind of general data analysis in an academic setting, they might use a lot of similar tools, but they may have different resources and they might be solving different problems. I see. But the fundamental nature of the job is probably going to be at least 80% similar. Yeah, I think that's also what makes it very hard to interview a data scientist because so for like software engineering, if I was going to interview a software engineer tomorrow, I'd be like, great, I can I can do that pretty easily. Mm. Like I can ask them a problem that I know tests their ability to, I don't know, analyze certain trees and, and use certain algorithms and then I'd ask them to code it up. For someone who says they're an informatician or a data scientist, then it becomes a little more complicated because I don't know how in-depth their ability to know statistics is. I don't know if they're better at just kind of working with data and getting it into the right structure. Mm -hmm. And I also don't know if they're more on the computer science end and they're able to build the infrastructure, but they're not necessarily able to understand the statistics on the other end. So that's kind of that whole range, which is why it's, it's kind of hard to evaluate. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, but this is very helpful because I didn't realize that there are, I mean, there, there seems to be a lot of overlap amongst all of these rules. And to me, data, I mean, and I, again, I'm speaking as a layman, but data scientists and big data and informatics, I thought they're like completely different areas. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's something to do with data, of course, but they seem to be pretty much the same thing. Yeah. 
Okay. And that's how I kind of see it. But I think people are different ways of the spectrum right. of what they know and what they right. do day to day. Right. So right now in your role uh, at Cytobank, so as you said that informatics, basically because we're talking about information systems, there's the storage aspect, there's the processing aspect, and then there's the analysis aspect, right? Do you want to add mm-hmm. anything else to that? I think that's kind of, yeah, those, those yeah. three tenants are are pretty related to kind of the fundamentals of informatics because during our training at Stanford, our requirements is that we need to know computer science, statistics, and like biological clinical sciences. And our coursework reflects that because we not only learn how like hospitals store and manage their data as well as ontologies, you know, a lot of us all took machine learning as well as just intro computer science. Like yeah. my undergrad was in computer science. And so we, we have to try to learn all of those aspects. And that that's to help you with the analysis and finding patterns. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And so, you know, if you take a step back, what do you think are the applications of this field? Yeah, it's grown a lot <laughs> the last five to 10 years. So from a computational biology standpoint, there's so many different applications. Like a lot of my work right now ranges quite a bit. It can vary from impact and kind of cancer research to automating standard quality analysis for different data types. Mm -hmm. It's also, I would say, like the field of finance and economics and things like that. I kind of remembered a turning point during my PhD when my, my father, who's a finance professor, started asking me to run models for him in R. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he couldn't he, he, he couldn't get to that point. Because a lot of, depending on your field, there are different packages that you use. So like a lot of folks in econ finance, um, some public health, your kind of intro software is like Stata or SAS or things like that. Right. And then if you have a more programming background, then you might use things like R, Python, et cetera. Um, right. And so those, those are kind of common tools and programming languages. And so anywhere from computational biology to economics and finance to social network analysis, like every single social network you're on right now has some of the largest groups of informatics folks in there from yeah, data yeah. scientists to data engineers. <laughs> yeah, just because of the like really, really huge amounts of data that you're working with. Yeah, also it means it's the best for their businesses because... If a company whose foundation is the social network and their their whole goal is to get you to click on something or to buy something or take you somewhere, like connect you with a friend more or get get your friend to play Candy Crush with you more. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have to know to when to, that, yeah, yeah, so they have to know what to suggest that you buy or when to give send you that request or whatever. Yeah, gaming companies, yeah. definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's pretty much any any field that requires working with massive amounts of data would require someone who is an expert in this field. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I would say that there's different levels of that. I would say that I think of it very similarly to how people train in computer science, where it's a mixture of computer science and statistics and building those skills. Okay. Okay. And going back to the three tenets, which is storage, processing, and analysis. So storage, uh, you explained that basically the goal is to like like Hadoop and all of these the goal is to try and store all of this data in a way that you're easily able to access it and do work with it can you also speak a little bit to the other two tenets what are the goals in those areas and where are those areas headed yeah I can probably speak about that best from a from a biological standpoint because that's what I know best Mm -hmm. so a lot of I would say the last five to ten years especially for like example um, genome sequencing the per patient amount of data per patient is quite large. And so once you get that data stored, there's a number of pre-processing steps to get to the point where you can analyze the data at all. And so we have that in flow cytometry and mass cytometry as well, where the, the files might be 20x the size before you actually get it down to the stage where you can analyze it afterwards. And so there's often pre-processing steps in every single field. For genomics and proteomics, it's a lot of cleanup of the data and some standard pipelines that exist. And so um, that's kind of that intermediate that intermediate phase before you get to the, the final, like where you can kind of take a lot of the machine learning and standard tools and apply them. And so when someone works in informatics, right? So I can understand the storage piece that 
there they're figuring out what is the best way to store data given whatever context that they're working in all of the analysis and the processing these are all of these will also probably change depending on the field right like what kind of analysis to perform what what is the kind of problem that you're trying to solve yeah so um in flow cytometry and mass cytometry which i work in the pre-processing step is i always think of it as a blessing and a curse (laughs) because the field of protein analysis for single cell has been very rooted in a lot of steps that are expert driven. And that's actually kind of common also in the clinic, right? Where decision making is expert driven because you have a clinician. And that's where it starts to get kind of messy because it's not as clear cut anymore. After you have some expert scientist or expert clinician kind of curate the data, then it gets to a point where, oh, now I can analyze it. But the analysis tools at that last point there's a set of standard toolboxes out there or kind of general problems out there. For example, within machine learning, I like to think of it as kind of, well, do I find shape in the data or do I try to predict something in the data? And that's the difference between like ah. unsupervised machine learning and supervised machine learning. Right, 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 right. That's, that's a great point. Okay, I see. Yeah, so you, depending on the context, you'll have to figure out what is the best tool or the best way to analyze this data. Exactly. Okay, okay. Yeah, and it's really like 80% of the time is what is the hypothesis that we're trying to test? Because once you figure out the hypothesis, Mm -hmm. then a ton of it's cleaning up the data or getting it in the right form to ask that question. And and who who develops that hypothesis? Yeah, so in my role, it can depend. So like most of the time, it's a biological hypothesis, although sometimes I've worked with like our business team for other questions that we have. But the hypothesis can be from anyone. I think sometimes it takes, uh, well, I'm also biased, (laughs) but um, sometimes someone with like kind of more of a statistics and computational background who really understands the data to come up with certain hypotheses, Mm -hmm. but anyone can come up with a good hypothesis. But I would say it takes someone who knows the data really well to actually answer that without a ton of biases or to understand what the caveats are with the with the actual predictive model that's being built to answer that, right. that hypothesis. Right, okay. So can you describe the kind of problems that someone in this field would work on? I think I, think I have a clearer sense of uh, the, the three different tenets, the kind of applications, but maybe we go one step deeper. Maybe you can share some examples of problems that someone would work on across each of these tenets. It's interesting because it's not siloed necessarily. Like for me, one of our kind of, you know, our chief architect, part of it is that if I come up with different problems, for example, I say, well, I need to pull all the statistics for all of the cell subsets in our entire database, let's say. He'll come back to me and say, well, maybe we should remodel the back end in our data this way because that'll allow you to access it faster so you can actually pull the results that you need. Mm -hmm. And so what's cool is that it's often a back and forth between the person who's trying to ask the questions as well as the person who needs to build the infrastructure for it. And that's why you have product managers (laughs) who actually kind of distill that into requirements for the backend engineers to, to put together. Yeah, because once those requirements are clear, then the engineer can know what is the best way to model the data so that you can work efficiently with it. Exactly. When I when I first joined Cytobank, so my, my roles changed a few times where I've done the product manager role, but also the, the statistician data scientist role quite a bit. And I remember it took me like two or three months to actually figure out what a product manager actually did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, I, I, I look on that really in a good way because uh, you know, at the time I didn't think so. But now when I talk to our, our um, engineering team and, and everything, they're very proud of the products that we put out together. So that makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. And then what about the kind of problems that you would work on in the other two areas? Sure. So from a pre-processing standpoint, right now within flow and mass cytometry, I mentioned before a little bit that it's some of its manual kind of expert analysis. And often within a lot of biological domains, there's a lot of great tools out there that other people have built. So for example, a lot of people from the Broad um, at MIT have put together a bunch of tools which can be connected together to pre-process the data. 
for genomics data and some for um, proteomics data imaging. And so imaging, for example, which this is more of a problem that's vastly applicable, not just with biological data, is things like segmentation, where you have an image and you need to find some region of some object in there. That's a pre-processing step. Because once you've found, for example, let's say a cell within an image, then you can start to ask questions about that cell, right? Is this cell healthy? Is this cell dying? Is this cell cancerous? And so that's kind of, that becomes a third step, which is the analysis step mm -hmm. after the pre-processing. Okay, okay. So actually, I think at this point, it'll be helpful if we can give an overview of what Cytobank does and where informatics comes in among the broad set of activities that Cytobank does. So Cytobank is a single cell platform for analyzing data. So biologists come, they upload, and they share their data on our platform. They also do general and advanced analysis and visualizations. So we have kind of from the machine learning end, we have two tools. One's uh, an unsupervised method for just clustering the data and visualizing it. And then another one is a dimensionality reduction tool that so kind of when I was starting at the company, one of my first jobs was to add a dimensionality reduction tool called Visney, which is nonlinear dimensionality reduction, which allows you to find like interesting and rare cells. So you can think of an example of like those rogue cancer cells, a, a very rare population. We allow you to kind of visualize and find those. Yes. Okay. So I'll yeah. be honest with you, Tiffany, none of that made any sense to me. So. <laughs> All right. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, so like in very layman's terms, right? So sure. I, I understand that, okay, so here, here's my extent of the understanding, right? That, okay, yeah. you have these biologists who are trying to understand what is happening at the single cell level. Mm -hmm. And yeah. for that, you need to do a lot of analysis. So there's a lot of data that's getting generated. Yeah. And Cytobank helps you do analysis, like store that data, pre-process, and analyze that data. So I get yeah, that. I could give a practical example. Yeah, would yeah, that help? yeah, that would, that sure. would help a lot, yeah. <laughs> so... So let's say you, you go to the doctor, right? Yeah. And you get a blood draw, right? And they want to see how you're doing. And when you get your markers back, there's all this information. There's like, how are your sodium levels? How are your, you know, just general levels? And often what you get, you get like a white blood cell count or a red blood cell count, things like that. And so what happens is that the information that goes into that, that's actually flow and mass, like flow, sorry, flow cytometry data. And so it's at the single cell level, meaning that it's actually going through and counting the cells one by one. And so the thing is, is that you, it's not just cell counting. You can actually get information about the proteins on those cells. What our software does is allow you to analyze each of those single cells, the different proteins. And those proteins could be cancer proteins. Those proteins could be like um, immune system proteins. And what right now kind of is this huge breakthrough in cancer treatment has been this whole field of immunotherapy, meaning that we're going to use our immune system as a way to fight cancer, essentially. In that case, you really need to figure out which cells are good and which cells are bad. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, and so if I understand you correctly, it's it's not just building the infrastructure to be able to work with such massive volumes of data but also knowing that okay because you're because you're working in the field like you're trying to understand what is happening at the single cell level you know what kind of proteins to look out for you know what kind basically you know what patterns you're looking for which allows the researchers to do the analysis that they're looking to do yeah okay exactly and, and it's so much of it is about the data interpretation and analysis which the informatics enables Okay. And so that's why I said, you know, 80% of it is what hypothesis are you asking I from see. the data? I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. So how do you, how do you measure the success of someone working in this field? A good question. <laughs> yeah. What defines success? So for example, from my background, which is more in kind of the biological analysis and hypotheses is if you find, you know, from a biological sense, if you find a result that is actually going to help a patient. You know, sometimes it doesn't matter what method you got there. <laughs> it actually has a huge impact. And I think that that is a measure of success, particularly in the biological and, and clinical field. From a, just a general informatics standpoint, if you're more on the infrastructure side, it's building something that scales, something that's performant, 
right. um, that allows people to build on it very easily and quickly, I would say, from the more data analysis, data side of things. I would say finding results that can be validated so and that can support decision making because sometimes you can ask the hypothesis, will this save us money if we make this decision versus this other decision? And so sometimes at the business level, especially, and this is why data scientists are, are very sought after for business analytics in general, is that you could save a company tens of millions of dollars by pre kind of computing what decisions you might right. want to test out. Right. So. Yeah. So do, do you think that this is a field that is, and maybe this is a slightly silly question, but is, is it more research oriented as opposed to you know, like a more well-established field where you're just applying things that have already been around for a long time and you're just applying those things again and again to do your job? So I would say there's a lot of tools that you can apply over and over again to do your job within mm-hmm. this field. The thing is, is that, and the thing I see a lot of people, if you try to differentiate yourself from other people who are also in the field, I realize the really good people actually know what to do with those results <laughs> I see. Um, and how to communicate them and use them effectively. The people who, I, I've seen a lot of cases where people want run a, like a machine learning classifier or something like that and be like, look, we got a result. And you look at them and you say, well, you ran it on, you know, just two data points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. means nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's very important to understand why you're using the methods you're using as well as the results you're trying to question, the hypotheses that you're trying to answer. I think that's that's just as important often as as what the tools you use, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, right now in this field, what do you think are the sort of key challenges that have to be overcome? Yeah, um, that's a good question because I think part of it, there's a lot of different challenges. So one, I would say that a lot of the technologies keep on changing. And so part of it, and it's very similar, I kind of think of like how web technologies are always changing. People are always trying to be on the cutting edge, but do they want to be on the bleeding edge of technologies? It's really whether or not like what technology will be able to, to solve your problems. I think that's one thing. I would say another challenge is the quality of the data. This is, a, this is something that I think varies because in biological data, the quality can vary substantially. And you often get into these cases where it's not just quality, but the amount of data, do you have enough? Because there, there's a set of, a bunch of studies about five, 10 years ago where they were doing gene-wide association studies, meaning it was basically a chip which allowed you to kind of go through the entire genome. And it's still it's still used now as well for quite a few different applications. And so, for example, I can go to the company 23andMe. I can get, I can spit in a tube. I, yeah, I know lots of people have done this, myself included. <laughs> <laughs> and you get trait information about yourself, right? Yeah. The problem is, is that if you're trying to do that at a disease level, um, in order to get enough statistical power, you need at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to come up with something that's statistically significant. I see. Um, and, you know, com- certain companies like 23 me they're actually getting enough people. <laughs> mm. Whereas a lot of the expensive kind of big studies that have been done before, some of them were large enough, some mm. of them were not. And so one of the things I actually do in a lot of my talks that I say is that something that's biologically significant may not be statistically significant and vice versa. Right. Um, that's a great and point. I, yeah. That's yeah, and it happens a lot. <laughs> oh, that's that so. is that supposed to scare everyone? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the problem is that you know once you get a result out of your data, it's nothing unless you can support it with something else. Yeah, yeah. And it may be more data, <laughs> or maybe some other validation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in your opinion, what do you think is the future of this field? And maybe you can talk about this more in the context of the biological side because that's where you're working sure i really prefer to spend my time more at the end point meaning that the data has been cleaned up it's been stored in a way that i can access it easily and i can ask higher level questions 
where you have more of a, a general toolbox of statistical and machine learning methods. Mm-hmm. Problem is most of the time people are not working on that. Informaticists are working on all the steps in between. How do I get the data? How do I get it to the right format? How do I store it? How do I pre-process and clean it up? Mm-hmm. And I think that the number of tools that will grow will be more on that platform end of things to allow the later analysis because everybody wants to save time. I see. Um, and I would say that, you know, something that's kind of one example of this, kind of a leaps and bound example in the last few years has been, it used to be that there was all these competitions for looking at images and trying to find objects and images, mm-hmm. right? Like you see a photo of a cat, human looks at it and they're like, oh, it's a cat, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And kind of the, the back in the day, a lot of the competitions were more on a lot of the neural network kind of machine learning tools used to win at these types of competitions. Mm-hmm. And then about, I'm, I might not be correct, but the last 10 years or so, it was more kind of these linear classifiers, support vector machines, things like that which were winning at making these predictions, right? But what's happened in the last few years has been there's been a return to these very similar to neural network structures, except much deeper. And it's the term is deep learning. And that has been just wonderful for certain problems, um, including pattern recognition within images. And so now if I go to like Google Photos, for example, and I type in cat or I type in bicycle, It'll pop out all of the photos that I have that have a bicycle and a cat in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's pretty impressive. So, but I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So, yeah, this gives a very good idea of the field itself. Thank you for that. I think now we'll switch over to understanding some of the more day-to-day aspects of your role. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you were if you were to think of your typical day inside a bank, what kind of activities do you have to engage in, and how much time do you spend on each of them? At a very sure. rough level. Yeah. So before, when I was doing a little more product management, I only wrote code maybe one day a week because I have collaborators at Stanford that I work with, mm-hmm. but ovarian cancer research. Um, now it's about 50% of my time. So 50% of your time is on coding. Yeah. I, I've been slowly trying to increase it because I've been realizing that so we have our software platform, which our fundamental customer and person who's using it as a biologist, but a lot of my time now is actually going to either an academic or an industry customer and using basically hypotheses and seeing if I can use the right tools in addition to the Cytobank platform Mm -hmm. to answer it. So I'm taking data from Cytobank that has been past that pre-processing step, Mm -hmm. and I'm using other algorithms and um, statistical analyses to derive results from that. And, and that is all through code. Yeah, so I'm, I'm writing kind of custom code. Some of it's becoming scalable now, but that's about half of my time. The other half is, is working with the team internally as well as people externally, discussing what the problems are, how we're going to solve them, um, things like that. Okay. So how big is Cytobank? Yeah, so... Good question. <laughs> oh, is it because of the, like you said, yeah. you have some well, collaborators we, in Stanford? We've got collaborators, but we've also got remote teams. So, for example, like one of the people that I love working with, Jeff, who's part of my team, he's over in Michigan. <laughs> yeah. So when I count, I can't look around the room and yeah. do a head count. No, um, I, I understand. No, I mean, the, the only reason I ask that is that it also sounds like, you know, it's a relatively sure. new company. So because it's, a, yeah. it's like a startup, so obviously... Every person, like, you know, you're the one who's not only are you figuring out what is the problem and then what is I the know, hypothesis, right? you're like coding for it, right? So you're pretty like yeah. one woman machine so yeah. who's doing everything. But, yeah. you know, if you were to take, so your example would be typical mm-hmm. of what you might find in a startup where mm-hmm. one person is figuring out everything, right? Exactly. So, so yeah, it's definitely not necessarily like that. So our team sizes vary between like two to six people depending on the project. Um, I think we... Officially, I can say that we're between 10 and 50 people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. That's a big range, but all right. It I, is a big range. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But if you, if, you were, if you were to take a slightly bigger company, right, where they might have someone who's mm-hmm. 100% dedicated to writing code and they might have someone who's 100% dedicated to figuring out the problems 
I mean, it, it, does that happen? So there's there if if I kind of go and talk just about data scientists, mm-hmm. um, I think I learned this like a year ago actually from a friend of mine. There's kind of two general models, and there's variations on this. But there's a there's a consulting model, and then there's an embedded model. And what that means, so the embedded model means you might have a pool of data scientists, mm. but if you have a product team that requires a data scientist on it, mm. that data scientist will live in that product team. So when you have, for example, if you have an agile framework for software engineering and you do daily scrums, you've got your product owner, you've got your engineering team, you've got your quality folks, and you've got your data scientist in there too. The consulting model is different. And this often happens in cases where you just don't have enough data scientists to go around, where you have a, a central pool of data scientists, but then they'll they'll farm themselves out to help with certain little projects or certain questions from time to time. And you'll see that a lot more in pharmaceutical companies where you have like a central bioinformatics team or something like that, where it's it's kind of hard to get their time sometimes, depending on which uh, division you're in, things like that. So you're saying that the data scientist acts like a consultant whose time Correct. you can use when, as and when needed, but otherwise exactly. you're on your own. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. The, the scientist who owns that particular, you know, okay. cancer marker and drug domain, they're the ones who are responsible. Okay. Yeah. And, and generally, what are the roles and functions that you're working with as, as an informatician? Yeah. Well, since we are a software product, very similar to a software company structure, except we have a bio, we have a heavy bio um, group. So I work with software engineers, I work with product management, I work with sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I also either sometimes I wear the project manager hat or I work with the project manager. Okay. Um, And so it's it's a lot of those standard roles. You know, it's interesting that you brought up software engineers. So can you describe the difference between a software engineer in this context mm-hmm. and someone like yourself? Sure. So our software engineers are great. <laughs> they build a ton of infrastructure for how our data is stored. And also a lot of it is actually web interfaces for our customers to use. And so from my aspect, me, I build a lot of prototypes. And so what I do is I prototype ideas, either analysis or even some mini pipelines. And in some cases, those actually become things that we put in product eventually. One component that I didn't mention, and some larger firms have, are designers. And so we don't have like a dedicated designer. We all contribute to design. But basically, from my aspect, there's an element of design as I prototype. But the majority of the time, the code that I build never gets given to a customer, and a customer never sees it. It's more that it's a means to an analysis. And so what the customer sees is some PowerPoint that I've generated or some set of figures that I've generated. The software engineers build whole interfaces that the uh, customers can interact with and scientists are able to explore their data with. Oh, I see. I see. So you're basically thinking about, okay, what kind of thing do I need to do this analysis? Maybe prototype it and all of that. But then it is the software engineers who are actually building the whole thing out while you yeah. might move on to the next project or yeah and yeah. what's interesting is that there's a decision that i have to make or advocate for which is yes this should be just a one-time analysis or a set of scripts that you know don't get widely distributed or no let's let's pause let's let me design it out and let's take the five months to build it into our product i see and, okay. and that costs far more time and energy and there's the cost of financing that right too versus let's get these results quickly together uh, yeah, yeah that makes sense okay okay no that, that that really helps because that makes the distinction very clear okay sure all right so then in your opinion what do you think are the most interesting aspects of working in informatics so it's it's both wonderful and extremely frustrating <laughs> to realize that you can see because you're at the interface of different disciplines, you know, computer science, statistics, and for me as well as biology, that you can see a solution or an answer sometimes. And you realize suddenly that you're the crazy person in the room and nobody else knows what's going on. And you have to make sure that you explain it so that everyone can see it and that how it can get solved. And this is why one of the differences they say between like data scientists and data engineers is that data scientist needs to sell. <laughs> hmm. um, 
And that's part of it is that, you know, you have this hypothesis, you see how to solve it. You need to convince everyone else that it's possible. And so not everybody makes those connections immediately. And so part of it's the training, I would say. And so I think that's one of the interesting things about working in informatics, but can be frustrating as well. That's a great point because, yeah, I mean, as you're, because it's, it's at a hypothesis stage, you actually don't have the data to support it. But yeah. you still want to convince your team that, okay, this is a good enough hypothesis to actually invest time in to prove. So yeah. how do you do that? So it's varied. Sometimes it, it, it also depends on how long you've been working at a job. <laughs> That's true. Um, so for me, I remember this one meeting that I had where it was a business decision that had to be made. And nobody really believed me. And so I actually asked one of our team members who I knew cared very much about this problem to help me. And what I did is I, he and I sat down together. We generated the hypotheses together and I just did the analysis because I knew to get a first pass of the results would only take a couple hours. And I think that's the, that's, that's kind of the, the Superman power of it is that <laughs> if you need to convince someone of something, and it only takes a little bit of data analysis and you feel like no one believes you, that, that can be really powerful because once you come back and be like, no, I have this result and this data to support it, then it becomes real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, so I mean, it is challenging, but at the same time, if you're willing to put in that extra effort in the beginning, it can go a long way. It's always a conversation. It's iterative. You always have yeah. a continuous dialogue. Yeah. And then are there any aspects that you find challenging about working in this field? I think I mentioned part of it before where one of my initial challenges was trying to, to coordinate individuals in cross-functional roles hmm. from very different backgrounds and trying to put everyone on the same page. I see that a lot when I go to customer sites as well, where I give a talk to the scientists and then quite often I've had someone come up to me afterwards and say, we want you to talk to our computational team as well. And so I think that's been challenging. Also, it's been really great because you, you actually start to connect people at companies that never talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's both a challenge, but I think it's also really fun. Right, right. And are there any aspects of working in this field that you just do not like? Yeah. I would say that I've, the reason why, and you said a little earlier, like it sounds like a lot of things I do are more on the research end. Mm-hmm. I would say we have a lot of impact in health and on the clinic as well. But for me, I love research. But I think one of the things that's challenging about being in academia is that you you have to make a name for yourself. And for me, I love doing the science. <laughs> mm. And so I think that's kind of, I've kind of worked my way out of it where I still get to work on the scientific problems, but I don't have to go and get all of these grants for myself. And I don't have to go through the, politics of trying to make my mark in the oh. academic world. I would say the also from a startup perspective, one of the best and worst things about a startup is the ever-changing pace. Mm. Yeah. I think it's one of the things I had to train myself out of very early was not to try to solve all problems at the same time. <laughs> I know in the beginning you're like you want to do everything at first. Yeah, right, so. you find you find yourself useful and you're like, yeah. well I want to help everyone. And then yeah. you realize you need to prioritize. Yeah. Yeah. So what is a typical career path? in this field, if yeah, at all so, it exists? It's <laughs> a good question. If I think about just my PhD program alone, oh, they've gone everywhere. So there are software engineers. So a lot of people from my lab have gone to be just straight software developers and software engineers. Some of them are data scientists. Some of them are data scientist managers. <laughs> hmm. Some of them are professors. And some of them, actually quite a few of them have started their own companies. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. pretty exciting. I mean, right now, this is a pretty hot field, right? Yeah, who knew it would blow up so fast? <laughs> no, but it really is. I mean, I'm seeing so many people on LinkedIn now who have data something on yeah. their LinkedIn. So, I mean, I, I mean, big data was pretty big for quite some time, but data scientists and all have started emerging fairly recently. Yeah, yeah. I kind of fly under the radar because <laughs> of my title. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and uh, are you aware of any common mistakes that people make early on in their careers? Yeah, well, in the in like informatics in general. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say that I think it's just always really useful to learn more statistics. <laughs> if you ask anyone who does the type of work, like if you look at companies like Facebook, for example, and 
you ask them who are their data scientists, they come from backgrounds in statistics, some of them in physics, right? And a lot of them come, some of the, the really talented folks come from very quantitative backgrounds. And so folks like me who came more from computer science, you kind of always feel a little inadequate because <laughs> you didn't have as many years of training like, start to end <laughs> oh my God. statistics. If someone with a PhD feels inadequate, that too in biomedical informatics, I mean, wow. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's that's the secret, right? Like, I would say a huge chunk of people who do their PhDs feel inadequate. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe, okay. maybe I'm biased. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. So you're saying that being very, very comfortable with statistics can be a big plus. I think so, because then you start to really, instead of just munging through the data and finding a result being like, I think this is significant. Mm -hmm. You actually understand the distributions underlying, like, why would you use hypergeometric in this case? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, because the distribution's this way. It's, it's things like that. Okay. That, um, yeah, there, there's kind of these fundamentals of statistics which can actually really help with later courses in machine learning, stuff like that. Okay, I see. Okay. All right, so then let's switch over to some questions around you know, potentially helping people who might be interested in, in exploring this field. Sure. So uh, in your opinion, what kind of person do you think would really enjoy or thrive in this field? Yeah, so I would say someone who really likes problem solving and enjoys kind of just computation in general. I've done a lot of computer science education, and I think there's some natural enjoyment that you see in some students who are like, oh yeah, I like thinking about code and I like thinking about thinking about things in this way, right? A little bit more structured, a little more quantitative. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a good thing. I, I would also say if you are more interested in new technologies from a data management storage databases aspect, mm -hmm. that's more on the engineering side potentially, like uh, data engineering. If you're more on the side of like, I want to find results and I want to communicate them and I want to give presentations and I want to show interesting figures about my results, that's more on the data science end. I and see. that kind of drives the two. I see. You know? But even when you say computation, so you said three things. One is mm -hmm. problem solving and then mm -hmm. computation and then more so the, the nuances in terms of are you more interested on the storage side or on the data scientist side. But coming to computation, so it's more, it's not just comfort with numbers and thinking through numbers, but it's also like statistics is slightly different, right? Than just pure math. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and how, how does someone figure that out? I think, so there's definitely websites that have interesting problems. Like I think I haven't used it too much, but Kaggle has a bunch of problems that you can go on to. Okay. Like people who try to figure out if they're interested in programming in general and like to compete, they go to top coder, for yeah. example. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I also think if you have a natural inclination, like I think one of the things that I did for fun <laughs> on the side during my PhD is I started going onto this penny auction website. I was just scraping all the data from there <laughs> mm -hmm. because I wanted to see if I could predict like what was going to change with their penny auctions at the time. <laughs> No, but this is also um, right because this anecdote is very helpful because um, <laughs> I don't know if there's someone else who's doing something similar, then I guess this is your dream job or at least something <laughs> to consider. <laughs> okay. It's interesting because there's not enough data scientists trained a certain way that companies need right now. And so there actually are accelerators that exist. And there's accelerators for a number of different things like web development, software engineering. And the data science ones, some of the really great ones, actually look for people who are post like PhD or post some advanced degree already proven to show that they love problem solving, um, mm. hypothesis generation, mm. things like that. Mm. And in a lot of these, both the accelerators, but also if you're trying to hire a data scientist, what's interesting is that during an interview process, besides showing your technical skills, but if you have an example of something that you're just so interested in that you actually decided to do an analysis for fun, that often will help you stand out yeah and that that's the same for like software engineering or even art when you show a portfolio yeah. things that you've tried out yeah yeah for sure yeah but this is very helpful for for potentially interested candidates and i mean given that you've been in this field for such a long time i'm sure you've seen many people who are really really excelling in this field what do you see them do differently what makes them stand out 
Yeah, it's interesting because I think part of it, well, especially within an academic realm, is to, I think part of it from a data perspective is sometimes you get so ingrained in this, in the data that you're working with, and it becomes so personal that you kind of lose sight of the big picture. Mm -hmm. And I think something that's very important is when you're looking at the data, there's this balance between having enough domain knowledge, but not being so bogged down that you lose the big picture of what questions you're trying to ask. I think that's very important because I've seen both extremes where someone's just applying some computational method to all these different data sets and coming up with results that may or may not make sense. And then there's the other aspect where you may know the data so well that you can't necessarily accept the fact that your method may show something different. <laughs> right. Yeah. And also just questioning your results, I think, yeah. is important. Yeah. 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 In this field, are there certain industries which are more mature or you would recommend to consider a job in as opposed to others? I would think the domains that I think have been heavily influenced by machine learning in general, as well as structured data. Oh man, the finance industry. <laughs> okay. I would say finance, healthcare, biological data. Those are some of the big ones. And I, I really do think all of the social networking sites. So a lot of the big companies in Silicon Valley, of course, all have a large data component. I think one of the things that sometimes gets forgotten is that a lot of the companies that make the infrastructure often have an applications team that utilize the infrastructure, mm -hmm. meaning that there are many different companies that create different database structures for the computation. And so there are often like uh, data science consulting groups that work in conjunction with the company itself. And so that's kind of that consulting model I was talking about where people go all over the world in teams and they go to different companies and they solve problems for them. And traditionally, it's called technical consulting, mm -hmm. where you have a software engineering team go in and build something. But the newer model for a lot of these big data solutions are a solution already exists, which is some kind of database infrastructure or packaged platform. And they go in with the platform, people who can put your data into the platform, and then a set of data scientists will show you how to get results from it. Right. Okay. And generally, once you've identified the field that you're interested in uh, and the companies that you hope that, that you want to apply to, what is the best way to apply? Like they always say is that if you know someone at the company, that's the best way yeah, yeah. for an internal referral. And that's really challenging sometimes. I think making yourself stand out is really important. And so there's a lot of great books out there, actually. And I could probably send you some later, uh, both for software engineering as well as there's some on product management. There's some on data science. But they kind of walk you through what the process is like. Um, oh, this is for the interview? So yeah, well, not just the interview, but also just trying to get like everything set together. I think having a good resume is important. I think also being creative with how do you actually meet recruiters. <laughs> oh, really? Um, yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah, so I think what was interesting is that recruiters, they're trying to find people that, that, that will go through the entire process and make it through. Mm. And so a big part of that is making it as easy as possible mm. for to get through. And so I think... If you're in school, that's awesome because the internship process is always a little bit different yeah. from the actual job finding process. And some companies, once you've done an internship there, it's it's much easier just to segue to a, a full-time position. But you know, having the keywords match with the actual role helps you get past a lot of those filters, which I think is very important if you have those skills. Right. That's a great point. But like, how do you find those keywords? I mean, will they be there in the job yeah. description? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like a job description might be like, must know linear models. And you're like, well, I took a course on linear models. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, some of it is that you might have taken a course. There's, there's a great number of courses online now, which allow you to learn a lot of these things as well, which I think is great because they're free. And you can even get certificates through some of these companies like Coursera, for example. And so the, the access to this information is growing. Right. I right. know th these are great ideas. And as you were saying, if you can share the links to any books that you think are useful, I can put them in the show notes. I, I think another thing that makes people stand out, I've had people who have been cold called because they have a blog <laughs> or ah. they have like 
and it's been really interesting like because just you know not even finished college you know 20 years old <laughs> yeah i have a blog on random things that i've been learning about computer science or something like that and okay um, that just it's been really interesting how much it's helped yeah. oh i see so that's just i mean if a recruiter has been asked to find someone so they'll go around googling or whatever and through the blog they will find someone is that yeah. how it works yeah, it's been okay. really strange. <laughs> I see, I see, okay. But I think there's a lot of great communities as well now, just because of social networks, LinkedIn, Facebook, there's like Google+, there are whole communities dedicated towards R, or whole communities dedicated towards like data science. And and sometimes there's a lot of noise in those communities, but sometimes there's good ways to meet other people who are looking for same opportunities or have different experiences. And that sometimes if you don't have those connections, and there are people who are willing to give you advice. That can be another way yeah, right. to kind of understand what is happening in the field. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, this is super, super helpful. I mean, I mean, in the end, let's say someone is, you know, listens to your podcast, becomes really interested in this field and wants to learn more. Any resources that you could point them to? Yeah, um, even though I really haven't used it. Um, like Kaggle, I always hear good things about Kaggle. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, and then I think the, the machine learning course on Coursera, it's a lighter version than what they teach at Stanford, but it's, I think, uh, from a lot of my friends who have taken the Coursera version, they've enjoyed it. And so there's there's things like that that exist online. Yeah, so one of my favorite professors who teaches machine learning is Andrew Ng, okay. um, uh, last name NG. He, I believe he's at Baidu now, but oh. he used to be a professor. He, he is a professor, like, associate with Stanford. He and Daphne Kohler started Coursera. And so there's a, a bunch of courses on there, but some of the first courses is his machine learning course on I there. I see. Okay, yeah, I'll definitely link to those two. Okay? Sure. All right. Thanks a lot, Tiffany. This was amazing. Extremely oh, helpful. I mean, I, I, I myself learned a lot uh, through this interview. Is there anything else that you'd like to share in the end? Any advice that you might have for someone considering this field? Yeah. Um, and I, I guess if it makes anyone feel better is that because you're kind of at the interface of different fields, you never feel like you know enough. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, if you just get your hands on data sets and you just try to keep on trying to learn more about how the field is changing, yeah, that's, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, in the end, if you were to make a pitch to someone as to why they should get into this field, what would you say? I don't see any of this going away. If you look at some of the largest companies, and this is this is kind of also the scary part. If you look at some of the largest companies out there, 15, 20 years ago, they used to always invest in large government projects and defense projects. And I think now you see a context which where the idea is that they're helping grow the data information out there. And that has so many implications. That has positive implications for communication around the world, healthcare, things like that. It also has implications for just general personal privacy and surveillance and things like that. And so I think it's important to understand what can or can't be done mm. with these tools, but also understand the power of all the good that these tools could use. And so that's why I say I don't see it going away. I think data is just growing out there like gangbusters. Biological data, I have this one slide where it looks like biological data is growing at like 70% per year. Oh, wow. <laughs> just in a general like over overview. And that's a very big bucket. So it's a very abstract. So that's thing. new data. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just huge because people are doing larger and larger experiments. Okay, yeah. Yeah. That's just so much more for us to learn, right? So it's amazing. Exactly. Okay, <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks a lot, Tiffany. This was amazing. Thank you so much hey. for your time. And it was great chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Yeah. So that was Tiffany with a very insightful and detailed account of what the field of informatics is all about and what is it like to work in this field. I hope you found today's episode helpful and I hope that at least some of you will think about trying out this field and working in it. It does sound like something that has a bright future in front of it and something that will offer a lot of opportunities for learning and for growth. I'll make sure to link to all the resources that Tiffany mentioned on today's episode in our blog. You can find our blog at medium.com forward slash at LED underscore curator.
As always, if you have any questions for Tiffany or for me, or if you have any suggestions for professions that we should include in our upcoming episodes, you can email us at learneducatediscover at gmail.com or you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at LED underscore curator. In fact, we're also available on Facebook now. So simply search for Learn, Educate, Discover, like the page, and you'll start receiving all the updates as we create more and more interesting content for you guys. Also, if you enjoy what we are doing, you can subscribe to the show on either iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud. We're available on all three. Simply search for Learn, Educate, Discover and you'll find us. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for your time and for listening. And until the next one, take care and be well.